0: Well, good morning, and I'm so grateful for our elder board who's been with us throughout this entire uh, path. We're coming up on a year now, and we had no idea. They had no idea what they were in for when they took that job, did they? I knew, I knew this was all coming, but they didn't. You know, hey, let me talk to you so, something I love. I love learning new insights on familiar topics. You too, right? Just go ahead and nod with me, even at home, nod. You know, it really makes me feel secure in myself when people just nod, even if they don't know what I'm saying, so it helps me. My son Elijah, he has a book of 1,001 facts, and every night we'll go through and read a different page, and there's some fascinating things in there that I didn't know. New insights on old topics. And here's one you probably didn't know, and that's this. Did you know that a shrimp and those roly-polies in your backyard— are both arthropods and it says it says that they taste the same now you we all think that's kind of cool but my daughter Salo will tell you as a matter of fact they do not Another insight about something very familiar, roller coasters, right? We're all familiar with roller coasters. In the 1800s, a businessman named LaMarcus Thompson, he could not stand that Americans were tempted by such sinful and hedonistic things as brothels and saloons. And he was trying to think of a way to to, kind of redeem entertainment in America. So he went to one of the most immoral places he could think of, Coney Island, New York. And there he built America's first roller coaster. As a temptation for people to come and have some good, clean fun and avoid all the sinful pastimes. And, and here's one last one I liked. The Guinness Book of World Records. How that came into being. Well, there was a man named Hugh. He was in the 1950s. He got into an argument in a pub with one of his friends over what was the fastest European game bird Sounds like a Monty Python skit. No, no, but there's argument on what's the fastest European game bird. And he went home. In the 1950s, there was no dial-up. There was no internet. He couldn't find a book with these facts. So he set out to make a book of facts and records. And his sole purpose was to get this book together. Why? So it would help other people like himself settle pub arguments new insights on familiar topics. And, and today we're going to be looking at a sermon, which for me, that this is why it was such a joy, new insight on a familiar topic. I've read John 2 about turning water into wine so many times. Perhaps you know the story. There's water, there wine. As a preacher, anytime I'm in a bar or with some people and they find out I'm a preacher, the one thing they ask me isn't about heaven. It's not about hell. They say, oh, you're a preacher? Here's some water. Go ahead. It's, the, it's the biggest request I get above weddings and funerals and everything. So, so, but there's new insights. And, and if you're watching at home with us today, I want you to go ahead and get some communion, get some wine or some juice and some bread and have it ready, because we're going to all take communion together. And with that, Orchard, John 2, verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, They have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. And nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used for the Jews by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus said to those servants, Fill the jars with water. So they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned to wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water, they knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheap wine after the guests have had too much to drink. But you saved the best until now. What Jesus did there in Cana of Galilee was the first of the signs through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. That that last verse is when we're going to look at this. It's the first sign. John doesn't call it a miracle. He calls it a sign. And the book of John is actually broken up into four sections. You have the prologue, the beginning, then you have the epilogue, the end, and then in the middle of John, you have these two sections— the second is the one we're in now called the Book of Signs. The Book of Signs. Because John is going to take us through chapter 11 and look at seven signs of Jesus that reveal his glory. Which will lead to the next section of John called the Book of Glory. So we're, here we are looking at, in the Book of Signs and the Gospel of John. And we find that, that John chooses to highlight Jesus turning water into wine to declare that he is the Messiah. I'm borrowing heavily in this sermon from author Tim Keller, who has some great insights on this. And the first thing he brought up is to ask why is this the first sign of Jesus' glory? Like, why this? Jesus, the Messiah, the Savior, who's launching a revolutionary movement of grace, he comes out and bursts onto the scene with his first sign turning water into wine. I want to talk about that. I mean, here, here's the deal. If it's me, and I'm getting ready to launch my movement, I'm gonna launch my ministry, a revolution that will change the world, I'm gonna kick it off with a bang. I mean, day one, I'm raising some dead. I'm gonna walk on water, while feeding 5,000. Like, it's going to be amazing. I'm, that's, I'm, that's, that's what I'm doing. But we learn here that Jesus chooses to first reveal his glory by, by turning water to wine, which is how I believe we, we can know this actually happened. Because this isn't how humans would write this. This isn't how humanity would do this. But you don't start with, by bartending a small local wedding to reveal your glory. But Jesus, he knows what he's doing. And there's some insights here that I believe have been lost. And I hope today we leave going, oh my, I will never read this story the same. Back to verse 1. On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited. Now, a typical Jewish wedding would start midweek. And it was not a single day event. Those of you planning a wedding in here, if there's anyone here planning a wedding, I mean, you're looking at, I'm doing my hair that morning, and then I have, you know, it's, it's a one day thing, right? But, but it was not a one day thing. It was, it could be from three days to seven days. A seven day party. And it was a joyous occasion because often, I mean, think of a wedding. It's, it's, it's when the common people of the whole village, the whole village would stop work and come together. It was a little like, mini vacation and time for community and fun. The whole community would show up as well as relatives traveling in from out of town, and that's why you wouldn't say it's Saturday at four, because you don't know when they're going to get there with their donkey. It's, it'll be all week. You know, we'll see you at some point. The wedding is, is a fairly normal event, right? It's a big party. But to understand the social dynamics that we just read about are going to change the way you see this. Hospitality, being a good host, was elevated in this culture so high. It was critical for the bride and the groom to have a good first impression. And remember, people put their lives on hold. The village stopped everything to come together. And they, they, this wedding party needed to live up to the expectations that they had. Any failure would result in shame in this culture in social humiliation. And there's even evidence that there would be financial burden and debt brought to the couple if they failed to deliver. Which is why it's no small deal when we read in verse three, the wine is gone, Jesus's mother said. They have no more wine. Jesus, his family, his friends, they're not rich. This isn't a royal wedding. But poverty is no excuse for the embarrassment that's in store for this couple. And this is why, one reason why it's so amazing that this is the sign that Jesus first decided to reveal his glory. I mean, his first sign is a miraculous solution to social embarrassment for these people. Not raising the dead, not calming the storm. He, he brought more wine for a wedding. A wedding that was supposed to, what, go maybe four days? Oh no, it was gonna go three? But we see, we, socially, Culturally, this would be a massive deal. But but more than that, what's the big deal? What's going on here? We're about to see that what happens reveals Jesus' identity. That what's about to happen here at Cana reveals who he is. In fact, in verse 8, Jesus told the servants Now draw some wine out and take it to the master of the banquet. We see this other person involved, the master of the banquet. In this culture, this would be the MC, the, the master of ceremonies, the, the really good DJ, you know, who does the announcements. But more than that, someone the couple has hired to handle all of the logistics of the wedding, a wedding planner to make sure that this week-long celebration continues to go and that nothing goes wrong. And guess what? This party is about to be a disaster. They're out of wine, Mary says. She pulls the savior of the world aside and says, they're out of wine. Like this is, this is a big deal at this wedding. The master of the banquet, the bride, the groom, all are about to have their reputation and standing go down in flames. But Jesus saves this party. But more than that, he saves the master of the banquet who we see in the writing didn't even know. It says the servants knew. The master had no idea. Jesus does for this feast what the master of the feast could not do for himself. How often is that true in our lives? Jesus does for him what he could not do for himself. And in doing so, the first thing Jesus reveals here is that he is the master of the banquet, the Lord of the feast. Now in the Old Testament in prophecy, it talks about God's kingdom and the Messiah. And and when it talks about God's coming kingdom and the coming Messiah, it has a few things that it mentions there. A party, a celebration, a feast, a banquet. And guess what's always a part of these big banquets when it talks about the coming kingdom? Wine. Throughout the Old Testament, wine and its quantity is an important symbol of the coming Messiah and the age of God's kingdom. Joel 3.18, in that day, in that coming day, the mountains will drip with new wine. The country will just be full. There'll be abundance. In Amos 9.13, these prophets, new wine will drip from the mountains and flow down from, the hill, from all the hills. Like there'll be such an abundance of wine in that day of God's kingdom. And when the Messiah comes, when, when this age passes, when this age passes, Jesus will then preside over the greatest wedding celebration that's ever been prophesied. He, he, he is the Lord of the feast. He's the master of the banquet who will provide the wine. The next thing we see is that Mary, is, she comes to speak to Jesus about this. The wine's run out. The wedding's in danger of being over. Here in this, in this little community, it's about to go from celebration to Humiliation. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. It's interesting because it's not Jesus' party. It's not her party. They know the people apparently. But, but Mary knows her son. She knows his heart. She knows his love. And, and she knows his power. Remember it says in the Bible that she cherished those words the angels spoke to her. She knows the promise of who her son is. So with no other option, she tells Jesus in dire circumstances, hoping that perhaps he can do something because there's no one else and there's no other options. And Jesus's response is the topic of much debate in the commentaries. Now, if if you ever find that you're bored on a weekend, do what I do just get a big stack of commentaries and just go from one to the next. The drama is just incredible. And right here, they do not agree on what's happening. Don't do that, by the way. It's not a good date night. He says, his response to her is this. He says, woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. You know, some translations and preachers, they try to, they try to, to soften this and have it say, dear woman, why do you, why do you involve me? Or madame, why do you bother me? But, but it's clear Jesus says, woman, why do you involve me? It, it seems almost as if he's, he's bothered here or something has troubled him. Now he's sinless. I am in no way implying that he was unrighteously angry at all. But his response on the surface doesn't seem to fit Mary's question. It doesn't even answer it. And the next phrase gives us the clue as to what might be going on here. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. And many translations will say my time has not yet come, but it's, and John says hour, and that's important. Jesus gives what, what seems to be a curt report, retort, and mentions some future hour to a present question. Now, what, what could this clue us in on? There's so much debate on this. And this is where I believe t- author Timothy Keller, in my mind, um, is elevated above some others. That, that Jesus, here at this wedding, in this moment, Jesus has his mind on something else. That, that's something he's thinking. Obviously about something in the future. My hour hasn't come. That time isn't here yet. What's he talking about? And more importantly, what's he thinking about that has him in this, in this state? Well, let me ask you a question. When you were at a wedding, what do you think about? Now, if you're married and you're at a wedding, you think about your wedding. And you hold her, you know, your hands and you just, And you just remember that, you know, you remember those feelings and... It was a blur, I don't remember anything, but I'm sure it was great, you know? But you think, when you are married at a wedding, you think back to an hour that was. But if you're single at a wedding, you don't have an hour to think back to. You don't think back to a time because your, your hour has not yet come. You're thinking to a future wedding. When I was single, I would sit there and watch a wedding or be a pastor wedding and wonder, I wonder what my wedding will be like. I wonder what she'll be like. I wonder if she's okay with blue and orange Bronco as our colors. Like, like I would want, like I, when you're single at a wedding, you wonder about your wedding. Now, if you read the Bible, cover to cover, you'll see there's a theme throughout the Old and the New Testament. The Old Testament prophets, they talk about God as our shepherd, you know, lion, our father, our king, our ruler. But you'll see throughout this desire and the plan of God. Not to just relate to us as ruler, but to relate to us as a husband to a bride. You'll see it all throughout the Bible. That God God continually characterizes himself as a bridegroom. And Jesus actually carried this on on earth. In fact, in Luke 5, he's asked by some people, why don't your disciples fast? And his answer is, why would they fast while the bridegroom's here? This is the time to celebrate. He's saying, I'm the bridegroom. In fact, in the very next chapter of John, we'll see John the Baptist say, listen, I'm just the best man here. He's the bridegroom. See, at the end of the age, when there's a new heaven, when God's kingdom is ushered in, we read in Revelation 19, let us be glad and rejoice. Let us give honor to God for the time has come for the wedding feast of the lamb, that's Jesus, and his bride. That in the end, there's a wedding Isaiah 25, speaking forward to that glorious day, he declares that God will swallow up death forever. That's what Jesus did and says that God is preparing a feast of rich food for the people, a banquet of aged wine, the best meats and the finest wine. I love that, the best meats and the finest wine. I mean, whatever is gonna happen in heaven for that party is gonna be incredible and it's gonna fit all your dietary restrictions because you'll have a new body. Praise God, amen? Gluten everywhere, woo, You see, this book in some ways is the story of a bridegroom fighting and calling his bride. And at the end, there's a huge celebration. This this book ends with a wedding, it ends with a fine vintage of wine. So when a single person is thinking ahead to their wedding and they're wondering what it's going to be like and how it's going to happen, Jesus in his foreknowledge, he is the word. He's not wondering what the wedding feast is going to be like. He knows. So why is he troubled here? Why, is he, why does he seem to be bothered and why does he seem to, to be troubled? Why does he seem to be lost in some other thought? Because I believe he's not just thinking about revelations and the coming kingdom and the coming wedding. Uh, I probably uh, he's probably thinking about. I think he's thinking about what it will take to provide the wine for that wedding. Mary's asking about providing wine for this wedding. I believe he's troubled because he, he's the master of the banquet who has to provide a wedding uh, a wine for a wedding, then. Mary says they have no wine, and his response is, My hour has not yet come. In the book of John, it mentions he, Jesus says, My hour, four times. And guess what he's referencing each of those four times? The hour of his death. They need wine. It's not my time to die yet. And see, when his hour does come, he bleeds. At the last supper, when he holds up the cup of wine, he says, this is my blood. The wine for the wedding is made possible by the blood of the sacrifice. Could it be that Jesus is here at this wedding in Cana and that his thoughts are on his own wedding like we would all have and the sacrifice that will be required for that wedding to take place? When he says, my hour has not yet come. My time to die is not here yet. He's not talking about the hour of this wedding. She says, they have no wine here. He doesn't have to die for the wine in this wedding. He doesn't have to die for this wine. She says, they have no wine. And he's pondering wine and how it will be provided for, for his wedding. You see, the only way that he gets to unite with his bride is he has to go through the hour of his death. They have no more wine, she says. Woman, why do you involve me? My hour has not yet come. Why is he responding like this? Why do people try to temper temper it and and soften it? Uh, Could it be that Jesus is sitting there surrounded by joy and celebration considering the painful path to his own celebration? If you can't be at a wedding without thinking of your own, he, he, he's sitting there probably drinking a physical cup of gladness of that wedding. But he's thinking about another cup that he's going to have to drink when the hour arrives. You see, if we're going to join him in heaven at the end of the age, if we're gonna join him as his bride and be present for the celebration and the feast and the banquet and the wedding, our marriage of his people to him, it does not happen without Jesus going to the hour of his death. And here it is. You see, in order for Jesus to drink the cup of joy with us, he has to drink the cup of wrath for us. Remember in the garden, before he's about to be arrested and tortured, he prays, let this cup pass from me. This cup of wrath, let it pass from me. The cup of wrath that we deserve. The cup of wrath that keeps us separated from God in heaven. The cup of wrath that he will drink so that we don't have to. And Jesus knows the only way I can drink the cup of celebration someday at my own wedding is to drink the cup of wrath from my bride so that she can be present with me. The only way you and I get to that wedding is if he drinks that cup at his hour. John talks about this being the first sign and says it reveals Jesus's glory. The glory of Jesus as the master of the banquet, both at this small wedding in Cana, and someday as he provides the wine at both It reveals his glory as the bridegroom, but also his glory as the sacrificial savior who will die for his bride so she can stand up there with him. Here in Cana, he provides wine so that this this little local wedding can go on, but he's gonna continue in his three-year ministry and spill his blood to provide wine for another wedding. He drives this point home that he's doing something much larger than just providing wine for a local wedding. In verse 6, he says, it says this, Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding for 20 to 30 gallons. And Jesus turned to the servants and said, Fill the jars with water. And so they filled them to the brim. Six jars for ceremonial washing. These jars were part of a religious ritual that the people would need to, to clean themselves before God. These, these jars represent the, the old way of being cleansed to be holy for God. And cleansing with water in these jars is something that they would have done time and time and time again. This is part of just their religious ritual life. Continually washing and rewashing with the water of earth. An imperfect system that required repetition and ritual. Jesus tells them to get these very religious uh, ceremonial jars for a very specific reason. Six of them, the number for humanity, and he tells them to fill them to the brim, you know, tip-top, with a little spilling out. And here, in these jars of religious ritual, he turns that water into wine. In those jars. A clear symbol that, hey, a new way is coming that in place of those repeated washings of water, in place of those repeated ritual cleansings, there will be blood. And this blood won't be something that you have to wash with repeatedly. This is the wine of blood that will be shed on the cross that will provide grace for all your sins, that you won't need a ceremonial jar of water to, to wash over and over, that you will be purified By the wine of the new covenant, of the work that Jesus is doing. Jesus is saying, where you once came to religious ritual to wash, you'll come to the wine of my blood and be truly cleansed. Jesus did these things to provide a path to the Father. He, he gave his own life. He's talking about his hour that's coming where he's going to die because he knows that, he, that that blood provides a way for us to the Father, that it, that it provides the wine for the wedding to go on in heaven because Jesus did this because he, he did this because he wants you to join him. He wants you to be there with him. We, his people, are the bride he's talking about. And so when we pray like, do you, have you put your faith in Jesus? It's not like just like, you know, praying a Sunday school prayer of like, yeah. It, it's saying, I want to be a part of that kingdom. I believe that Jesus provided the way with his sacrifice for me to be a part of that. And so just right now, I, I can't move on without praying this prayer. And, and if you're in this place and, or you're watching with us and you want to take a step to believe in Jesus as your Savior or to reaffirm your faith, then pray with me. Say, Jesus I love you. I need you. I know you died and rose again to provide a way for me. I receive you and the Holy Spirit into my heart. Now with that, I want us to take communion together, both at home and here. So if you'll go ahead and get your cup. I want us to do this together as a group. And so go ahead and open you're at home you have your bread we don't do this lightly we don't this isn't our church snack we're learning today again all afresh all anew just what this meant and what the symbol of this is and so hold the bread with me wherever you are and and I want I want you this time to break it the body of Jesus broken for us Jesus thank you for your sacrifice take and eat Now open or get your your juice or your wine or whatever you have. And to realize that the wine for the wedding in heaven was provided by the blood of the Savior. And so we, Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice that you, you drank the cup of wrath so that we can drink the cup of celebration at your wedding. And until that day, until we drink that heavenly vintage, We celebrate and we are thankful for your sacrifice here on earth. Thank you, Jesus. There's one more thing I wanna talk about that I couldn't couldn't end without getting to because I believe there's some people here who who really need some hope today, who are in some difficult circumstances. And so I wanna look for just a second at Mary and her response here. You know, Mary had probably never seen Jesus perform a miracle before. John says this is the first time his glory had been revealed. And, but she had heard all those things the angel had said. She knew of his power. And she goes to Jesus and says, they're out of wine. And he gives her an answer that's unclear. He doesn't tell her he will or he won't. He doesn't say yes or no. She has an unclear response to her problem. And what does she do with that? What's her response? Well, first of all, let me ask you something. When you go to God and you say, I need you, I need you with this circumstance, or I'm going through this season, or I have this problem, or, or I just want more of you, and you, you hear an answer that's unclear, or the circumstances are unclear, or you just get nothing, and it doesn't make sense, how do you respond to the, in those moments? See, oftentimes when, when we go to God and we have a need and, and we get an unclear response, we take matters into our own hands. We assume that God's not gonna be active in this one. We assume that Jesus isn't making a way. We assume the Holy Spirit isn't working and we miss what he's about to do. And oftentimes we go and just make a bigger mess of it as we take it into our own hands. Mary gets a response from Jesus that is unclear. And what does she do? Like, Does she take it into her own hands and like start going throughout the town seeing who else has wine? Does she, does she go through the crowd and start getting donations? Hey, hey we're out of wine, please give some money. Or does she go to the cupboards and start looking everywhere? What does she do? She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he tells you. She doesn't know what Jesus is going to do. She doesn't know if he's going to do something, but she's all about whatever it is. Her faith in Jesus was so great but there was no reply. She didn't go, Jesus, what do you mean? You're our woman? I'm your mom. There's no response. There was nothing. She just goes, you do whatever he says. I want faith like that. That when I'm in need of Jesus to move in my life, that my response is, I'll do whatever you ask me to do. I'll do whatever you tell me. And, because let's be really honest here. What does Jesus do? He tells the servants to get some religious jars and put water in them. If I was there in my human eyes, I would think that he was about to like get all spiritual on everybody in the middle of a wedding. That's what we assume about Jesus in our culture, by the way, right? There's a party going on and he walks in and goes, time for baptism. He's getting water in the ritual, washing. We're, gonna, we're out of wine, and he wants us to cleanse ourselves? Like, in our human eyes and brains, we would have made some vast assumptions about what he's doing and what he's not doing. I imagine Mary watching this. She goes, we need some, they're out of wine. Do whatever he asks. And then she sees him tell to go get jars of the ritual religious washing. You see, sometimes God is working in your life, and it does not make sense. Sometimes God is working something behind the scenes in your heart and life, and it's, it, it, it makes no sense at all to you how that would have to do with what you need. I don't know why I've had to go through seasons that were hard or, or circumstances that were unclear, but afterwards, looking back, I saw clearly how God was moving in my life to provide for me in the present when I couldn't understand it in the past. Have you ever been there sipping the wine in the wedding where you're like, oh, now the jars make sense? But back then you had no idea what he was up to. Sipping on the results of God's work when you didn't know what he was doing. And here's the application some of you are going through circumstances, seasons, and setbacks that don't seem to make any sense. And, and, And yet, with faith like Mary, you can say, God, do whatever you ask, I'll do whatever you ask. And you can trust in those seasons that he's strengthening you for the next. And you can trust in those circumstances, he's giving you courage and building your character for the next chapter. And in that setback, you can be assured that he is setting you up for the next breakthrough, that God is actively at work in your life, even if you don't understand what he's doing, even if it seems like he's filling jars with water. He's arranging things and it might look strange trusting him, being faithful to him when it doesn't make sense, being open to whatever he asks and knowing that he works all things to the good for those that love him. So today, whatever circumstance you find yourself in, whatever anxieties plague you, whatever season of difficulty, whatever setback you're facing, God is active. And maybe don't go out rummaging through cupboards for wine to solve your own problems and say, God, I'll do what you ask and trust that he is making a way even if it's unclear and tell him that, I'll do whatever you ask of me. He's making a way. He's working a way. He's active in your life. And pray for us. Jesus, we thank you that you are master of the banquet. Lord of the feast, Savior of the world, Messiah, high and lifted up above all things, and you provide wine. You do the small things for small weddings, and then you do the great things for great weddings. And that's amazing, Lord, that here seems to be a small thing that you did for people. And Lord, you care for the small things in our life too. And so right now, your orchard, as we are here in this room or in our own rooms watching, we pray, Father, that we pray this. We'll do whatever you ask. We trust you're making a way and we trust that you're actively working and that you are involved and you care about the small things in our life. So we now turn and we worship you because you are worthy to be worshiped. Amen.